Well, welcome. Uh, Acts chapter 19, and we're going to work through verses 21 to 41. Um, and, and really, what Acts is, we talked about this on Friday night at our small group, it is not a prescription of what we're supposed to do every single occasion, but it is a description of what happens when the gospel uh, kind of invades the lives of people in powerful ways. Now, most of the time when we talk in the church, and, and by that I mean the kind of church like this church that I kind of grew up in, in the, in the broad stream of kind of evangelical Protestant churches in the United States, most of the time when we talk about the gospel of Jesus in our churches, we tend to focus most of the time on what that has uh, specifically for individual implications in our lives. Like, what does the gospel mean for my life? And that's right and good. Uh, there's a bunch of historical reasons for this. We don't have time to get into all that today. But focusing on individual implications is good. It's right, and we should do that. And yet, in stories like the one we encounter today, we actually are going to see that there are huge communal, societal implications for what the gospel does to entire communities and even economies in a, uh, in a place. And so uh, what we see is what happens every uh, sort of spring where the new life that's happening pushes out uh, the old dead life that might have been there. That's kind of what we, that's a metaphor for what we're going to see. And it begins to replace things that were once important with new things that are now far more important than anything else had been in our lives in the past, both individually, but also communally. And so today we're going to see that happen. We're going to see the results of the gospel uh, kind of invading a community, a city. Um, but then we'll also see the response of those who would reject that gospel, that good news, uh, and that's the response of sometimes resistance and sometimes even persecution. Uh, okay, so as we start the story for today, let's just recap a little bit uh, quickly from last week. Paul has traveled to the ancient city of Ephesus. If you're like, who's Paul? He is one of Jesus' followers who has been commissioned to take the good news of Jesus, who was Jewish, outside of the Jewish people into the world of the Gentiles, which, praise God, because that's your world and my world, unless you're Jewish in here and I didn't know it. Um, but he is traveling at this point, and he has now traveled to the ancient city of Ephesus, which you may remember is a dark place uh, where the dark arts, uh, as a lot, a lot of uh, commentators called it, are popular. There's a lot of occult stuff happening. There's a lot of pagan idol worship happening, uh, but all kinds of spirituality is happening in this place. Uh, that's pretty interesting because we live in a time and a place where people are exploring spirituality uh, in some of the same ways, maybe not overtly, but in similar ways. Now, we saw last week that it was commonplace for people to be demon-possessed. And, and how do we know it was commonplace? Well, it was so common that apparently an itinerant exorcist uh, industry exists, right? Luke mentions now some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, like that was a thing, apparently. Uh, but what we also saw was that uh, what was what happens when the gospel invades that space, Jesus captures the hearts of the uh, hearts and minds of people, their lives. Uh, what did they do? They began to, as the scripture said last week, they began to confess and divulge all their practices. And we even saw that they burned their books of magic and that the cost was enormous. Uh, if you just kind of scroll up or look up in your Bible earlier in chapter 19, you'll see that stuff. And so what has now happened is that a group of Christians now exists in this city of Ephesus. There are followers of the way, 
uh, as, as the book of Acts calls it. This is what we would call a church, right? Now, are they organized in the way that we think of a church being organized? No, not really, but they are there. There's a group of Christians existing in this city, and they're growing in number, and we can assume they're growing in their maturity in the Lord. And so now Paul, this is why we can assume this, because now Paul, seeing apparently that they're stable enough, gets ready to move on to where God is calling him next. We're going to start in verse 21 of Acts 19. Now, after these events, so this is the divulging and the burning of the books and people growing in their faith, right? After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, if you know the book of Acts, you know that's going to be the end for Paul. Uh, But he's already talking about it. I must also see Rome, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Again, I want to note, Asia here is a province, not the continent that we think of today. So this little two-verse section is like a nice warm feeling, right? It's It's like, man, this is so nice. I imagine Paul, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I had a little bit yesterday. I was working on some stuff uh, at the house while my wife was on uh, at the beach. She left me a list of things to do, uh, right? And so I was doing that yesterday. <laughs> and She's not in here. That's why I'm so brave about it. Um, but I imagine Paul sitting down with a cup of coffee or whatever he would have drank, red wine, I guess, uh, in moderation. And he sat down and he would have been kind of breathing out, man. All right, what's next, right? That's kind of like the feeling I think of. I don't know if you have that feeling. Maybe you're a student at the end of a semester. You're like, whew, all right, what's next? Nothing, I'm a student, awesome. Um, And so you've experienced that and you finish a big project. You're like, all right, let's move on to the next thing. But then we get to verse 23. Like he has that for a short period of time. Verse 23, about that time. So we don't know how much of a period this is, but let's assume it's fairly short. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, if you're like, what's the way? That's how the Bible and people talked about Jesus followers. They didn't have a title yet. They were just the way, which is kind of awesome because that's what following Jesus is like. It's not a title. It's not a uh, political thing. It's a way of life. And so there's really not a good verb for that. So they just called it the way. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods, which we would say, yeah, right? And then he says, and there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So, to understand what's really happening here, we need a little bit of insight into the backdrop of the culture that these artisans are kind of working in, right? Which is, uh, the, which, which the birth of the church kind of interrupts. They're working in this culture, and the birth of the church in their city sort of disrupts that. And so the epicenter of Artemis worship was actually a, 
everything I could read, it's a black meteorite uh, that was either just had been resembled, but probably more likely had been fashioned into a kind of a grotesque image of a woman. And if you look up statues of Artemis, you'll see depictions of this. The lower part was kind of wrapped in what looked like, uh, like a mummy, and then the idol herself was covered with breasts, which symbolized uh, fertility. So this is the, the goddess that they are talking about. So what we learn here is that at least a good piece of, if not the whole uh, economy of Ephesus is, is affected by this, right? An entire trade depends on idol worship. And so there's a lot we could say uh, about this to our, uh, to our own economic system, right? And idol worship. Now, it's just that our system is based on maybe subversive idolatry and not overt idolatry, but uh, that's a different thing for a different day. Um, and so we're maybe not so different as a nation, uh, as what we see going on here in Ephesus. So we meet this guy named Demetrius. Apparently he is leading a group of silversmiths. Right? He brings them business. Uh, and so we, we read that he is bringing them business and he's a silversmith. So we see from his speech that he's clever. He's smart in the way that he argues this. Whether intentional or not, it's a very clever way to argue his point in how he frames his argument, right? He mentions the economic implications. Not only are our jobs threatened, other guys who make idols for people to buy, not only is that threatened, but he couches his attack on the gospel in what seems like pious terms about how their God is going to be defamed if this continues. He, he talks about how Artemis won't be worshipped now, if you can pull yourself back a little bit and think about the reality that this is the same sort of God-mother country argument that is used all over history to justify idolatry, this text will make a lot of sense to you as to why they're so mad. They're enraged, it says. Why? Because there is a bit of idol worship, country worship thing going on here, right? And so the persecution that Demetrius sort of brings down on the followers of the way of Jesus here is economically motivated because the power of the lordship of Jesus is starting to touch the wallets of these idol makers. And when that happens, resistance is going to happen. It's going to happen in your own heart when Jesus starts to say, hey, I'm lord of your money too. And it's going to happen in your culture when you start to say, I don't want to participate any longer in the idolatry that's going on around me. Verse 28. When they heard this, the silversmiths, they were enraged and crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater dragging with them Gaius and Aristocrus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him in. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together." Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of 
the Ephesians. Okay, so some more background here is going to help us understand. The reason that Demetrius doesn't really have trouble in gathering a crowd is that they were in the midst of celebrating uh, an Artemis festival, which is called Artemisia, uh, which is basically a month of debauchery. That's what this festival is. Uh, Partying, drunkenness, all kinds of sexual debauchery. So essentially a Mardi Gras on steroids type of atmosphere. Okay. Now, during this time, pilgrims, people would come from everywhere to participate in things like athletic contests. They would obviously drink. They would, uh, they would do all kinds of just wild stuff, and they would have ritual sex with prostitutes. And so in one of the commentaries I read, a man named Achilles Tatius, who is an eyewitness to one of the festivals, wrote this. He described the festival like this. It was the festival of Artemis, and every place was full of drunken men. And all the marketplace was full of a multitude of men through the whole night. So people are just drunk out in the streets. That's what's going on here. So now what clever Demetrius does here is after he gets these drunken men all worked up, which is, I don't know if you've been around a group of guys who are drunk. It's not that hard, right? Um, He begins a ritual. And if you're like, how does the pastor know that? I've been to baseball games. Okay, in football, it's not hard to get guys that are a little to get real worked up about nothing. So what what he does is he begins a ritual chant, which they all knew, which is great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is not just him. This is a chant they would have known. Okay, so what happens next is actually pretty typical of what happens when you see this type of group hysteria. That's what's going on here. The crowd then pours out into the main big street that runs straight through the city. It's called the Arcadian Way. This street connects the harbor with a 24,000-seat amphitheater in Ephesus, which is where they end up. So this is a huge crowd of people. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I was thinking about an experience, or this text brought an experience to mind uh, that I had in the city of Nashville uh, some years ago when I was in college uh, I was at a conference, the Passion Conference. Maybe some of you know what that is. Uh, it was at the Bridgestone Arena, which is where the Nashville Predators play, a hockey arena. Uh, I looked it up. That arena will hold, for an event like that, about twenty to 22,000 people. So very similar crowd size. Um, and so there was this part of the conference. That year, they had the conference in multiple venues within walking distance of each other. And there was a time when the main sort of session ended, and there was like a late-night concert thing you could go to. Uh, in a different venue. And so we, everybody in that stadium left out of basically the same main entrance. And there was a little bit of elevation to walk, I don't know, half a mile or so to another venue, because it's Nashville and there's venues all over the place. Uh, walk about a half a mile up a little hill to another venue. And I remember getting about halfway up. I'm in this huge crowd of people. And I turned around and looked because I was uphill. And it was just like a river of people. Like the whole main street, you could, there was no break in the people. And so that's the kind of crowd that's going on here. And so if you've ever been in a crowd like that, even though this crowd it was full of a bunch of Christian college kids, so pretty calm on the scale of wildness goes, right? Just come out of like a, a sermon where a guy said, turn your life to Jesus. We're walking on the street trying to be good kids, right? So pretty calm. On the skip, but even just because of the size of the group of people, there is an inherent, like, little bit of confusion 
and just sort of like what's going to happen going on in a crowd that size just because of its size. So now imagine that size of a crowd, but everyone is caught up in an enraged, angry, likely drunken state. It says some of them don't even know why they're mad or what they're even doing there. And what you get is chaos. And that's what we see in the text here. Just chaos break. They're chanting this chant that they know. Some of them are like, why are we chanting this? I don't know, but let's do it, right? It's just this angry, chaotic moment. And it went on for a solid two hours. How many of you have been to a professional sporting event and a chant starts? How long does that last? Like maybe two minutes, right? And then it kind of fizzles out. Or the wave, right? The wave gets going and it's like, oh, cool. And it gets around like four times around the stadium, like 40 seconds later, and it dies out. Two hours, a group of people is chanting the same thing over and over and over and over. It's a wild scene. And it's an incredibly dangerous and terrifying scene. Something could happen at any moment. If someone had made the first move, these companions of Paul and maybe even Paul himself could have been torn limb from limb. Right? Mob justice. That's what, the, that's what it's on the brink of. I don't know if you've ever seen a situation like this on TV or been close to something, but you can feel the tension of it. And that, that's what's happening here. Now, if you take an honest assessment of what's happening here, Paul and the Ephesian, the Ephesian followers of Jesus are assaulted. Why? Because of what's happening by the power of the gospel, namely, New life in Jesus for those who are following the way of Jesus. This isn't just a nice little add-on to their lives. It had radically transformed their lives in such a way that an entire industry is threatened in this city. That's wild. right? Think about the implications. Just our neighborhood. Like Think about those businesses that profit off of people's addiction and oppression. What if people got free from that and lost the taste in their mouth for that sin? Right? Like what if an entire industry that actually hurts people went under? There would be a riot. People would not be happy about it. What we see is this transforming power in their lives And so they had come to see Jesus for all of his power, all of his beauty, all of his grace. And what what happens is they didn't want what they wanted before. That's what happens when Jesus grabs your heart. This is what it's like to follow Jesus. Jesus is better, and when Jesus is better, it begins to affect everything in your life, but also in the life of the community that the gospel of Jesus encounters and enters including sometimes the literal economics of that place will change and shift. So here's a question just for us to consider. What areas in our lives as a community of faith together is Jesus bumping up against and are we willing to say, I no longer want that? One area that I'm continuing to be convinced is like it's touchy for us because it, maybe it's touching a reality, is this area that we just breathe in, which is busyness. We've talked about this before. We talked a lot about this during COVID because some of us really struggled when everything went away and we're like, what do I do with quiet? I don't know what to do. 
We, we've talked about this, but I think it's worth mentioning. Again, I, I think it might be the most pressing threat to life with God in our culture. It's not overt idolatry, but it might be the idol of achievement and progress. This is what our lives show that we value. And Jesus comes along and he says, find rest in me. He says, find rest in me. And if we're honest, sometimes there's a bit of a revolt that happens in us as we hear Jesus calling us to come and find rest in him. Like, well, yeah, but it's going to affect my life, Jesus. Now, there's all kinds of other sins we could mention here that would fit in this sermon as well. We talked about some specific ones last week. So if you want to feel bad, you can go listen to that on YouTube, I guess. Um, but as I was thinking and praying, don't really feel bad. That's not, that joke didn't work. Um, as I was thinking and praying this week over this message, particularly against the backdrop of Independence Day, right? Thinking about what does it mean to be a good citizen? I was drawn back to this reality of how overly busy we are and how we fight against God's invitation to come and be still with him through the finished work of Jesus so often. We find reasons why being still is, eh, yeah, but I got stuff to do, Jesus. I got important things to do. And Jesus might be saying to us in this situation, he's not saying, hey, melt down your silver idols. He's saying, be quiet for a little while. Be still. And if you're sitting in here and you're feeling frustrated and defensive about what I'm calling out, my invitation to you is just to honestly consider why. Why is it like that? Now, even though Paul and the other followers of Jesus are not afraid to attack the Ephesians' idolatrous lifestyle, right? They're not afraid to go that route. What we see is that that's not actually their primary approach, that's not actually their primary approach. And we know this because the town clerk states in their defense that they are, quote, neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. That's verse 37. So what, so what do we see here? We, we see that these men and women are so full of the love of Christ that they repent and they follow Jesus without compromise. And this brings the persecution. They're not jerks to anybody, Right? They don't try to ban the sale of silver idols of Artemis. We don't have that in our text. They're not culture warring. They're simply following Jesus without compromise, and the results follow. Look at the contrast in verse, starting in verse 29. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among them... The disciples would not let them, and even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. How is Paul at such peace that he's like, let me get in there? How are they displaying such peace in the middle of chaos? The answer is so simple for us. It's so Sunday school. It's so old church that sometimes we kind of don't want to hear it. We want something wittier, but I got nothing else for you other than to say that simple trust in God is why they are able to have such peace in this moment. They're able to walk in this peace, the peace that passes understanding, right? We look at it and like, why in the world would you do that, Paul? Because he trusts God more than anything else. This is a simple formula that's always true. Trusting God will always bring you inner peace. It won't always bring outer peace. That's not promised. But it will always bring inner peace. In fact, many times trust in God will actually bring outer chaos, like in this story. 
but it will always bring inner peace. Isaiah 26.3 says this, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Now, the, the, the word there, the Hebrew word for perfect peace is shalom, shalom. It's like double shalom. It's peace, peace. So when the Holy Spirit leads us to repent of old desires and old loves, I've used this metaphor a million times here. We grow up eating great apple pie that our grandma made. We go off to college, we start eating frozen apple pie. It's disgusting at first, but we're like, well, I'm poor and I'm in college. So we just keep doing that. And then a year later, we go home maybe for Thanksgiving or Christmas break and grandma makes the real thing. And we're like, man, I don't want that frozen stuff anymore. Right? That's repentance. Tasting and seeing that Jesus is better than silver idols. Tasting and seeing that Jesus is better than a life of busyness for busyness sake. And it leads us to shalom. He supplies us with peace. And so here's another question for us. Do we have that kind of inner peace? It's possible to actually have outward peace and inner chaos. When you're not walking with the Lord, when you're just following the ways of this world, things can go pretty good for you. But internally, it can be chaotic. I would much rather have outward chaos with God and inner peace. And so if you don't know this kind of inner peace, my invitation to you is to trust God through the finished work of Jesus and you will have inner peace because he will be with you no matter what. Let's wrap this up. Verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Christians have never been so happy to have somebody in charge who really is a stickler for the rules. Right? But we just see this amazing ending to this moment where we see evidence yet again that God is in control. He's in control. He does care for us, for those who follow him. Now, it, it has to be said that, that he would be in control even if Paul and his friends had been beaten and killed, and yet, his, and yet in his grace, that's not what happens here. And we can praise God for that, right? All the shouting is going on, and God's at work. God, God's got this. At the perfect moment, right, when they have kind of yelled themselves out, it's a dynamic of crowd stuff, Crowds kind of swell and then it kind of dies. And at that perfect moment, God brings a pagan city official who just so happens to be a stickler for law and order and he brings the mob to its senses somehow. You have to believe that God is doing something. Right? One guy bringing a drunken, enraged mob to peace, God was there. Now, I just want to ask us some hopefully pressing questions again to, just to end today. 
My goal with this is just maybe one of these will lead you, lead the Holy Spirit to ask you a, a nuanced, different version of one of these questions, or that it will just kind of rattle around in your head this week. How is our spiritual life going? How is it going for us walking with Jesus? Do we have the same life as everyone around us? Or is there something different about us and the way that we relate to the world? And even in our text today, even the ideas of money and economics and how that's made. Do we think differently about that? What about our community here as a whole? It's good and right for each of us to think of our church in, in, in that kind of way as a whole. Do we see evidence that we have a different set of values around things in our life together than the rest of the world? Have we become desensitized to sin? Are we actively desensitizing ourselves to sin? So, some of this was covered last week. Do we smile? Do we laugh at things that break God's heart? Do we expose ourselves to things that reawakens Past things that we were enslaved to. Let, let's get really specific here. Based on this text and the backdrop of Independence Day weekend, are there any ways that we find ourselves at odds with the values and the treasures of the country that we live in? Because there should be. There should be ways that we find ourselves at odds with the economy of the way things are. Even in this great country that we are so blessed to live in. If you want to walk in the peace of God, there will always be ways that you will be at odds. There will be ways in your life that cause those who want to worship idols to become frustrated at you. Because your God is showing their God to be false. Whatever that God looks like. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you again for these words, this story, this narrative that we get to follow along to see what life with you can look like. Lord, would you help us to guard against maybe a couple of errors as we read the book of Acts, thinking that this is a prescription for every little detail of our lives. Lord, we don't want that error, but we also don't want the error of seeing Acts as totally irrelevant to us. Lord, help us to walk in wisdom and discernment, to read this book and to think about what it's telling us. And Holy Spirit, would you illuminate it to us as we study together as a church. And, and Father, we do pray against the principle the principalities and the powers that exist in this very neighborhood. Lord, we pray that through us as your, as your chosen instruments, that people would encounter your gospel, your good news about your son who is Lord and who is coming, and that that would create a situation where people lose the taste in their mouth for the sins that are driving some of the economy of even this neighborhood. Lord, we, we pray against drug addiction. Lord, we pray against relationship fracturing. We pray against the immorality that leads to so much destruction, Lord. Would you, through us sharing the gospel and the good news of your son, transform the lives of people to the point that maybe something similar to what we just read about today would happen, that people would be frustrated because so many of us are seeing our lives transformed that things that used to be valuable in this community are no longer valuable. Lord, we want to see your kingdom come in Lansdowne and wherever we live. And we pray this in, in your name, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.